Hey guys, I'm Tyler Mahoney. And I'm Jeff Falkenberry. And we're back for another edition of the Endless Season Outdoors Podcast with special guest today. We're really excited, Jeff Hodges. Jeff, how are you doing? Doing great. Jeff. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Absolutely. Is a very long, accomplished, long-term, or long-time fisheries and wildlife biologist has uh, done a lot of great work in Missouri and a lot of the states surrounding Missouri uh, has done some private land management. So a lot of this episode, we're going to be talking to Jeff about his experience getting some pointers for all of you guys out there that do have land and you're looking to learn on how to make improvements. Um, So we're going to be touching base with him on that. We're going to be talking about turkey season. We're kind of wrapping up here this coming weekend in a few days. And uh, so we'll be touching on that, kind of what we've been seeing, hearing, and uh, maybe a little bit more on the morels coming up and some Truman fishing too. So, um, you know, with that, you have been out in the turkey woods a lot and uh, you just got back on Truman Lake today. But before we get to that, just tell us about your your second turkey in a lifetime. (laughs) Second turkey in a lifetime. Well, I was fortunate enough to, in 2001, I killed a turkey that had uh, eight beards on it and uh substantial beards you know i've killed some multiple bearded turkeys but it's usually like you know five or six little hairs Mm -hmm. um but these were all substantial beards and then uh, the first week of season this year i was with some buddies and um you know when i shot that eight bearded turkey there was three strutters Mm -hmm. and i shot the one in the middle that's just how it happened yeah um this situation there was two long beards and I don't know, seven or eight jakes. Mm-hmm. And this long beard happened to be the first one to get to <laughs> where it needed to get to. Right. And so it just worked out. But I killed a bird this year that had uh, just over 50 inches worth and oh. six beards. Wow. Um, and he had big spurs. Yeah, and... good spurs. Uh, inch and three-eighth spurs. Yep. Weighed uh, just over 24 pounds. Mm-hmm. So it was a really, really super good bird. And um, then I take my wife, and she kills a double bearded inch and a quarter spur 23 pounder mm-hmm. and i took um, a good a cousin of mine mm-hmm. family friend. Yeah, we're all family but mm-hmm. um and he killed a bird with inch and a half spurs double beard goodness and gracious weighed, uh, just shot 23 pounds so wow. been in the monsters yeah big birds i mean yeah. big birds this year we haven't really seen uh, a lot of two-year-olds mm-hmm. you know all the birds that were taken the the birds that my buddies have taken uh in the area that we're hunting um has been mature birds we were talking about this before the show it's just not a lot of of two-year-olds you know and i think a a lot of that's attributed to poor weather in Mm -hmm. 2019 and the floods um throughout the the state yeah i mean not only lack of two-year-olds but for us i mean we got lucky enough and we got i got one on opening day my dad got one opening weekend but um, the gobbling activity for us here in the uh, West Central Missouri area near Clinton uh, has been very minimal compared to other years. I mean, we're talking where even on opening day, I think opening day was the only day I've heard a gobble past 7 a.m. around our property. And we've got several hundred acres here that we control now. And so it was just, I mean, when you think about turkey hunting, you're thinking about hearing a turkey gobble going after him and if he gobbles a 10 you got it <clears throat> yep <laughs> and but we have not heard a turkey gobble except for opening day past 7 a.m uh typically it's been between 6 15 and 6 45 a.m and i mean they're starting up later 
this year, last year they'd be gobbling before shooting time started. Yeah. But they were starting after shooting time and only going to about 6.45, 7 o'clock at the latest. And, and that's been it for us. And so you can sit there and wait and just hope they come by and keep calling. But for me, I, I don't have the patience, so I just start moving. But You know, a lot of times on the, on that gobbling, though, it, it, once a bird gobbles, it'll stimulate other birds to uh -huh, gobble. Uh -huh. So if you're not hearing much gobbling, you don't have that stimulus that's getting the other birds yep. fired up and getting yep. them going. So, I mean, it's kind of a compounding effect. Yeah. If, it's a, if they're quiet, then it, it's quiet everywhere. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, everyone's quiet. So, you know, there may be other birds out there mm -hmm. that it just, they're not getting fired up because you're not getting a lot of that gobbling going on. To that point, it seemed like when I did have the birds somewhat fired up, early in the morning, I was using a gobble call. I was gobbling at them and they were getting going. And then when I quit doing that, thinking, okay, they've got to come check this out. No, they just stopped gobbling. So exactly yeah. to your point. You guys, Johnny loves that gobble call. Uh -huh. He's killed so many turkeys with that gobble call. It's unreal. Mm -hmm. He tells me all the time, well, you should have had a gobble call. <laughs> you know, if it doesn't work out or whatever. I've had one instance uh -huh. that I can honestly say that that bird died because of the gobble. Of the gobble. Man, he and my dad need to hunt together. They'd be peas in a pod. Because, oh, oh my God. <laughs> my dad is the exact same way on the gobble call. There are days where all he has taken out is a gobble call. <laughs> I'm like, what are you doing? You're intentionally handicapping yourself into a gobble call? I, I'm not saying it don't work. Right. I mean, obviously, those guys, you know, like Johnny or your dad or whatever, yep. know how to use it because yep. they're going to kill a bird. Yeah. You know, nine, nine times out of 10, they're gonna kill one, but yeah. But I don't even own one anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Just, it's not something in my arsenal. That, I mean, I have an Elvis, mm -hmm. that's what I have. Yeah. And and uh, when Elvis comes out, things are fixing to happen. Yeah, tell everybody what old Elvis <laughs> is. Um, you know, there's, I'm not a huge fan of fanning or reaping or whatever you wanna call it, crawling out to mm -hmm. the birds. Um, now, if I can get in a position of a goblin bird and get him, get him fired up, get him goblin, and then show him that strutter, mm -hmm. it's on. Mm -hmm. And a buddy of mine, a really good friend of mine, uh, he was calling his Elvis, and I thought that was just the coolest thing, so it stuck. Uh, yeah. They're all Elvis. So now <laughs> yeah. when, we call, when we talk about turkey hunting, um, you know, he takes a pile of kids, they've killed a bunch of mm -hmm. birds, and and uh, I always ask him, like, did it, did it work in or did it Elvis? And he's like, it worked in or it Elvis and mm. he'll ask me the same thing. Did it work in or did it Elvis? And man, there's just something about that. If you can get him fired up, uh, my wife's bird, we got him fired up late in the morning. It was about eight thirty, nine o'clock. There was three gobblers together and uh, got him fired up, got him fired up. They had some hens with him mm -hmm. and the hens was trying to pull him off, you mm -hmm. know, walk him away, walk yep. him away. But the gobblers were still pretty interested, uh, but they wouldn't just come. You know, the hens are trying to, trying to drag him away. Well, you whip out Elvis and the demeanor changes. Them birds came across one field, flew a creek into our field, Why? all the way straight to us. It's impressive. Uh, yeah. That they wanted to get there. And she shot that double beard. Mm -hmm. And if I'd have been in a little bit better position, I had my the barrel of my gun right here and she's kinda leaning on me and, and we got a decoy in mm -hmm. front of us and I'm trying to make sure everything's yeah. ready here and and she shoots when birds fly, and I, I tried to shoot. But, yeah. but when one flew, it had three or four beards on oh. I could see them all hanging. <laughs> I'm like, oh boy. So I got a date with that guy, hopefully before season ends. There's a good little gene pool over there. Yeah, it's so the funny, though, yeah. but they're, they're 40 miles apart. Oh. 
Of course, well, she killed her bird. It's yeah. <clears throat> far away from where I killed my bird. Yeah. Where where Drayton killed his bird mm-hmm. is far away from where she killed hers. So yeah. it's not like and the eight bearder I killed here. Yeah. So. Huh. That's wild. It's just. Uh, I guess the luck of the draw. Yeah. Hey, that's know. that's a turkey season for the memory books. But I've sure. been yep. turkey hunting almost every day. Yeah. Almost. Um, three three days or so. I yeah. Guess, but almost every day and. We've seen the same thing some days. Mm-hmm. You know, they gobble this. Right now, they're starting to gobble about 520, mm-hmm. 525. They're hammering pretty good because it's getting light early. Yeah. Um, and they fly down, and, you know, not a lot of gobbling for about the first hour on the ground. Mm-hmm. Then it picks back up. Mm. But it got so hot. Once it started hitting that 80, 75, 80 degrees, yeah. 9 o'clock, done. Game over. Yeah. Um, now, Sunday, the second Sunday, which has been the last Sunday, I guess it was, mm-hmm. um, nothing on the roost. Yeah. Not a peep. Eight o'clock, mm. <sighs> you know, it's like, wow, well, here we go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and those birds work, you yeah. know. But it's just weird gobbling sequence. And just like Jeff said, you know, when one gobbles, the other gets fired up. Yeah. We saw some birds strutting into binoculars way off in a field. And a buddy of mine said, I got a blind right over there. Let's go jump in it. So we go jump in a blind. We start calling. Here they come. They're jakes. Mm-hmm. And they come. They blow up and strut. And they get in the decoys, spin around on the stakes. And, uh, but they start gobbling. Mm-hmm. And two of them had full fans. Little bitty old beard, but full <clears throat> yeah. super jakes, what yeah. we call them. Yeah. And they start gobbling. They got a good full gobble. Well, behind us, it's 1130, almost noon at mm-hmm. this point in time. Behind us, full Oh, yeah. And they're like, oh, yeah, get ready. Yeah. You know, they're going to. I said, if we can keep them gobbling, they'll gobble one up. Mm-hmm. Sure enough, he gobbled behind us, and Andrew looks out the blind. The three Jakes and the decoys pick their head up, and they go walking away. Yeah. And I was like, oh, here they come. Yeah. They're somewhere behind us. Yeah. Right. Andrew peeks out, said, I see redheads <clears throat> coming through the woods, and yeah. there's a bunch of them. Five more Jakes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> so, um, good Jake crop from 2020. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. It's different areas, and you watch on social media, and I'm I'm in a lot of these turkey hunting pages and forums and mm-hmm. and discussions, and I I don't debate a whole lot, but um, I just kind of peek in, and you know certain areas of the state still are maintaining mm-hmm. pretty decent. Mm-hmm. Other areas are not, which is it's always going to be that way. Yeah. Um, but with the increase in public hunting the last four or five years yeah you know around in our area in henry county and benton county uh truman lake we have so much Mm -hmm. opportunity for public land hunters and so we draw one heck of a crowd and the flood the increase in hunters i don't care what anybody Mm -hmm. says yeah um the 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 proof's in the pudding Mm -hmm. you can make numbers whatever you want but the proof's in the pudding Mm -hmm. um the increase in hunters the floods and the poor weather on the you know two years back to back bad hatches yeah has really made an impact in our area yeah a huge impact yeah i mean we were looking at the numbers earlier the turkey harvest right now is uh just right under thirty thousand. i believe last year i think it ended up somewhere in that 42 43 total range so yeah. and we're, we're twenty eight thousand, i think yeah right r- roughly and so i mean there's not going to be 14,000 birds killed this last week so no. it's it's going to be way down compared yeah. to last year yeah. and it'll be interesting to see if uh any changes get made as a result i don't know we, we i don't know 
we saw it coming. I mean, everybody's seen it coming except the, the right folks. What are your thoughts on that, Jeff? I mean, Kansas went to one bird. Uh, is that something that the state or, you know, maybe it's something that people need to self-manage their own properties where they limit their harvest. I mean, what are your thoughts on kind of turkey harvest, what we were just talking about? Yeah, to be real honest with you, I'm I'm not quite up on the numbers with, yeah. with turkey hunting to, mm -hmm. to find out. I mean, I, I know the department... Uh, you know, they look at those harvest numbers every year, uh, and they've got some other surveys that they do to look at their numbers. Um, it, but you also know that, you know, that's two bird limits. It's a tradition in Missouri. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And for everybody that's rooting for a one bird limit, there's someone else rooting for them to keep a two bird limit. <laughs> right, you know? right, yeah. It's the so same the way with one o'clock hunting. Yeah, yeah. Well, all day hunting versus one o'clock yeah. hunting. So here the department sits <clears> in the middle, and how do you... Yeah. So, you know, their, their line has been, and, and, and I subscribe to this, is, is they want to follow the science. Right. Whatever the science, yeah. science yeah. says. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I've, I've got to have faith that they're looking at what the, their survey results are oh. telling them, and they're making their decisions based yeah. on that. I think by the end of the season, it's going to be like, hey, look, we need to take a step back and maybe, maybe look at something here, you know, because right. in every other state is. Yeah, I mean, all the other states is. I do know. Yeah, in general, turkey numbers are declining yeah. in a lot of a lot of places. Yep. Yeah. I do know Kentucky right now is uh, hitting records. Um, they had a fantastic season this year for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. um, they they did real good, but Oklahoma's struggling. Kansas obviously mm -hmm. has been struggling. Yep. Um, you know, and so I think it's just something. You know, uh, litter. You know, there's some guys I can't say either way. So this is not this is not an opinion. This is just something that has been brought up to me. But uh, a big business right now is chicken and turkey litter mm -hmm. um, being fertilizer on on farmers' fields. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's there's I guess some chance <coughs> that it could spread disease. Mm -hmm. um, I think most of it is coon skunks, possums, yep. <laughs> yep. armadillos, uh, that sort of thing. That, yep. Uh, you know, fur prices are down. You don't have the, the coon dog runners anymore like mm -hmm. you did. And trappers don't trap as much, and I think yeah. that's most of it. Nest raiding predators. Yeah. I don't think it's so much the bobcats and the coyotes and the foxes. I think it's the nest raiding predators. One thing I was reading, too, interestingly, and there's really nothing we can do about it, but uh, a big predator of adult toms is owls. They will pound them on the roost when they're really? going. Yeah. Um, I'll have to go try to find the article, but it was a pretty scientific article that talked about that there is a pretty sizable mortality rate due to owls. Um, nothing we can do about that. Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how significant that would be. Yeah. Yeah. It'd yeah. be interesting to, to follow that up and find out. According that to the article, it was, I mean, it was significant <clears throat> enough for them to be writing an article about it. So that was news to me, and I think the study was done in the southeast part of the country. Um, Wasn't it about the fifties <clears throat> when they reintroduced the turkey back in like Henry County? They had a, a release and a whole deal. I want to say well, it, it seems was, it seems early to me. I, I was thinking more sixties, but I, I don't know. I, I mean, I I've been around a few years, and I I remember the first um, turkey I ever heard gobble was probably about. Um, I'm gonna guess about 1973, 74, and that was in St. Clair County. Yeah. Um, and my dad was using a gobble call. <laughs> but, so but there weren't any between, hunting season then either. Yeah, you know. so, but somewhere between those mid-70s and we'll say, we'll say that, you know, 2000. I mean, yeah. I mean, we had 
tons of turkeys. So they initiated it in the mid-1950s. Missouri's okay. turkey restoration efforts would span more than two decades. I was thinking it was 56. I was and thinking. But. involved the relocation of more than 2,600 turkeys to 213 sites in 91 counties. Yeah. So they started in South Missouri just yeah. like they did with the deer. And yeah. then they just kind of started moving yeah. to other locations. Of course, the, as you know, the National Wild Turkey Federation was real big into, mm -hmm. the, into yeah. those releases and being involved in that as well. But, um, you know, one of the things that you didn't uh, mention, you were talking about uh, impacts on birds, you were saying, um, uh, and, and this is true with quail and, and a lot of other non-game species uh -huh. as well, uh, pheasants and game birds and whatnot, uh, are the neonicotinoid uh, insecticides that are on a lot of the farm crops uh -huh. that are out there. And um, there's, they kind of have a double impact on them. One is, uh, Insects that feed on plants that are treated with the neonics, um, they they die. Right. So there's a food source Gone, for yeah. all of these young birds that's out there, and there's also some um, fairly uh, recent research that's uh, indicating that uh, if those birds go ahead and pick up those dead ones, then they start to accumulate some of that uh, oh, insecticide in in their um, body so then it affects reproduction rates or survival mm. and okay so they're you know you you got a hundred things out there oh, because yeah. you can't just say this is it yeah you know no, it's, that's, it's, that's it's, not, it's not the flood it's not the insecticides it's not the coyotes yep. it's not the yeah. raccoons yep. but you put them all together it's all the recipe and, yep. and that's what that's what's doing it and, and then we're seeing these huge changes on the landscape with all of these things and i always i always like to refer to it as the the coyotes and the raccoons and the possum let's take coyotes out of it because actually they're they kind of do a favor but the raccoons and the possums all of that mm -hmm. they're a symptom of the problem mm -hmm. you know the problem mm -hmm. is is a bigger issue yeah they become symptoms of the problem doesn't mean they're not part of the problem but they're a symptom of the problem but just like a sickness you, you treat that symptom with trapping retreat with, the with, symptom you know. right right but if you could get it at the root and and treat the cause. Oh yeah, that's that's where you're really going to be. So this is very fascinating because when I was running or uh, writing for the Kansas City Star, someone had wrote in wanting me to do an article about a, a pesticide called Paraquat. Um, and Paraquat. They were convinced yeah. in Kansas specifically that it was decimating not only turkeys but pheasants. Um, that was their qualm with it, and uh, it all goes back to exactly it was an insecticide that killed the bugs, but they were saying also was killing the birds. It's by directly impacting them. Is uh, paraquat an insecticide? Um, I th I thought it was thought an herbicide. It was uh, it's a pesticide. Um, well, pesticide covers both. That's the general category for plants or animals. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I'd have to do some further research on it, but supposedly it's illegal all over the world, but it's still allowed to be used. Um, a little bit here. This was a couple years back, so yeah. the information I have now. I'm pretty familiar. I mean. It, Paraquats used frequently. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. There might be something to it. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It was going to take. It was going to take way more research and time than the amount of money the Kansas City Star was paying me to uh, to do that story. So they didn't want to do the story. But um, anyway, that uh, is very fascinating. So, well, to I just hope they bounce back. You yeah. Know, you know, whatever we got to do to to make that work. Yeah. I just hope that. Like I said, treat all these symptoms, find the find the root problem. Yeah. 
The highlight of my turkey season was the mushrooms here the last week, um, <laughs> late season. I'll just say when you're in these mine land areas, especially now, you might still have a chance. Like, maybe. Um, it'll be on north-facing slopes. Don't even bother looking anywhere else. North-facing slopes. Probably too late now, but um, late season, that's where they're at. Oh, Jake Tonsfeld over here is the uh, the sage of mushroom hunting over there in the Tonderosa has taught me that the last couple of years, and it has been spot on both years. So, something interesting for folks yeah. for next year to keep in mind. Um, before we get into some of the land management stuff, Jeff, I wanted to get a quick update from you on mm -hmm. Truman Lake. Uh, the other Jeff. Yeah, the other <laughs> Jeff. Okay. Jeff with two Fs. Um, <laughs> You were out today, you had a good day, and uh, it's funny, I've been seeing some people, like you said, on the fishing forums, the spawn's not on, I showed up, they're not on the banks, and well, yeah, I don't know, you're obviously not reading Truman Lake Fishing Intel, uh, or you would know, but there are, there's a lot of fish on the banks, aren't there? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there is. Um, all our fish, we caught our 60 mm -hmm. um, today, well, Monday. And I had a little boy and his mom and dad out, and we had a really good time. We were casting and dragging jigs. Yep. And uh, really just had a bomb time. Yeah. And some big fish. Yeah. Some really big males and yep. some big females. And we caught some females that were about done. Mm -hmm. But we caught some that were hadn't spawned yet. Yeah. So. yeah. so it's how long do you expect that to last? It, think? it could be two days. It could be yeah. two weeks. You don't yeah. know. It's so, so hard to say. Weather's going to permit. You know, weather's going to do everything. Yeah, and I haven't checked the forecast, so I don't don't know if or weren't we some rains. Yeah. We got some rains. Temperature's um, supposed to drop. Some cool fronts coming in, and so it'll it'll make it challenging. Yeah. But we'll adapt and overcome. Yeah. Well, uh, as all of you know, we have TrumanLakeFishingIntel.com. We'll have fishing reports here virtually every single day. We did over 50 fishing reports in April. That's great. Um, what's kind of funny is there's one day I didn't put up a fishing report. And everybody wondered where it was. And that was the day that <laughs> <laughs> some folks wrote in, where's the fishing report? I'm like, man, guys, like, I've got, over on, I've got over 50 up here for you. So uh, anyway, we're going to continue to put out as close to daily and weekly fishing reports um and tournament coverage all that kind of stuff at truman lake fishing intel jeff's one of our contributors so we'll have reports from him now that he's getting back on the water we'll have reports from him every turkey week. season's about over yep yep time to chase those fish i so. made that post the other day i said i was getting tired of eating ribeyes and two eggs and morel mushrooms uh -huh. for breakfast I'm, mm -hmm. I'm gonna be back on the boat eating granola bars mm -hmm. and beef jerky mm -hmm. for too long yep that it'd be a good change of pace <laughs> so you you handle waking up early a lot better than I do. I I do, man. I turkey season for me is like uh, I don't know what it's like, but if I if I, you know I can't get up soon enough. Yeah. You know, if I get up two thirty, I'm gonna get up two thirty. Mm -hmm. You know, it don't bother me. Right. Because I know I'm going turkey hunting. Mm -hmm. I love it. Yep. I absolutely love it. Yep. It's freaking awesome. Well. I want to get into talking about some land management stuff uh, with Jeff Hodges here. Um, Jeff, why don't you give everyone a quick background as to your experience in the land management world and some of the organizations you've worked with? Okay. Um, yeah, I started out, my first job was uh, actually with the University of Missouri. Um, 1980. Easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So get yourself here. <laughs> um, 
It was at uh, Gaylord uh, Memorial uh, Research Laboratory, which was down in the Boot Hill, uh, next door to Duck Creek. Okay. Uh, yeah. Fish and Wildlife, Mingle National Wildlife uh, Refuge mm -hmm. down there. Um, I was a research, research assistant there. Uh, and then from there, I went to work for the Department of Conservation, worked for them in mm -hmm. a variety of jobs and locations around the mm -hmm. state for about five years. Mm -hmm. um, spent some time with uh, Sharp Brothers Seed Company, oh, who yeah. were major native grass mm -hmm. uh, seed producers, wildflowers and whatnot. Uh, got a lot of really good experience there. Went from there to Quail Unlimited, was a regional director for Quail Unlimited. Mm -hmm. uh, about the same time I left Sharp Brothers, I also started up a business doing, um, as a side gig, doing contract uh, land management mm -hmm. stuff. I started out doing prescribed burns and native grass plantings because there were Working at Sharp Brothers, there were a lot of people looking for someone to help them do that, yeah, yeah. Um, and there wasn't anybody out there. So it was like, hey, here's a chance to yeah. do something I enjoy doing and make a little extra money. Well, that yeah. grad, that just continually grew until, um, oh, I don't know. I, I I kept doing that to through about 2015 or so, um, and in 2015, I uh, I had a position offered to me mm -hmm. uh, with the National Bob White Technical Committee. Uh, it was really, um, really appealing to me. Mm -hmm. um, so I took that uh, position. So now I'm working full time for them, but I still keep engaged in the land management. I mm -hmm. kind of dip my toes in for a little sure. bit, do whatever. Uh, during the time I was doing land management, I was a, a registered technical service provider with the NRCS. Uh, which allowed me to basically do a lot of the things that they would normally do, come out of the office and do. And yeah. so I was qualified to do that, those mm -hmm. kinds of things and sign off on <clears throat> management activity, uh, wrote a fair number of management plans, implemented a lot of management plans, mm -hmm. uh, and then also did work for people that had uh, farm bill programs that mm -hmm. were enrolled in farm bill and they needed native grasses planted or yeah, right. prescribed burning or right. timber stand improvement or um, you know, wetland management. I, I mean, I, you know, I've dabbled in about yeah, all of you've it. done it all. Yeah, in well, four, forty years. So, so we're at the tail end of turkey season. So I guess I mean, in my mind, we just got through talking about how there's some tough conditions the last few years. What I mean, do you have any pointers on what folks that do have their own land or lease some land and they have some control over the place? Um, any pointers for what they can be <coughs> doing to improve turkey habitat? Yeah, you know, when you think about turkey habitat, it's the same with any kind of wildlife. I mean, you know, food, water, shelter. I mean, mm -hmm. it's got the things you're looking yeah. for, but but particularly with turkeys, you, you, you're you talking about nesting and broodering habitat. It's, right. it's kind of the bottleneck, Yeah. Um, except in the years you have a lot of rain and a flood, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like we did in 2019. Uh, but... Uh, with that said, creating the right kind of habitat can improve your nesting and brood rearing uh, so your population would tentatively be right. better uh, yeah. if, you, if you got everything out there you need. You can basically grow the birds and then hold the birds. Grow the birds, then hold the birds, yeah. exactly. Um, so with that in mind, you know, you think about, you know, what what's a turkey like to nest in? Mm -hmm. I mean... Native grass fields are used a lot. They yeah. use a lot of native grass fields, mm -hmm. but they also use the timber. But they typically don't nest in a closed canopy timber. They mm -hmm. kind of like it a little bit open, yeah. mm -hmm. so you get some sunlight to mm -hmm. the ground. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and that's really one of the big things that I've noticed on a lot of properties when I visit them. And when they're talking about managing for deer and turkey, they've got a woodland that's overgrown 
and it's thick mm -hmm. and they've got a solid canopy that no sunlight's getting to the ground and you look at the ground and there's nothing but leaf litter mm -hmm. oh yeah um the the oak, oak trees aren't producing the amount of they're producing some acorns but not the no. amount they could be because of all the competition around them so you know one of the things that you could do is go in and start doing some thinning in mm -hmm. there and and try to get some sunlight to the ground one of the other things you can do is run a prescribed fire through it and yeah. get that litter mm -hmm. off the ground so then you've got some some plants coming mm -hmm. up that provide some of the the either the turkeys are going to browse on the plants yeah. or else there's going to be bugs on the plants and bugs on the plants are really really important for brooding mm -hmm. uh, those it doesn't matter whether it's a, a quail chick a, a cardinal chick or a turkey chick bugs are critically important mm -hmm. for the first four to six weeks of their life mm -hmm. they've got to have bugs so Basically, you're going to ma be managing for bugs. Right. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. And you got to figure yeah. out what you're going to do. Manage mm -hmm. for it. So thin your woods, get some sunlight to the ground, um, run a fire through there to consume yeah. the leaf litter so that what is there can come up. Um, and then I would say kind of on the back side of that, if, you know, maybe consider putting some food plots in. Yeah. You know, alfalfa is really well known for attracting bugs, but be sure you, you get a maybe an older variety of alfalfa that doesn't have some of the neonics in them mm. into the genetics Built like we talked it, about yeah. earlier. Yeah. Like use a Roundup Ready Bean type. Yeah. 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 Um, in, in general, broadleaf plants, sunflowers and, and buckwheat yeah. and, and those kinds of plants usually attract a lot of insects. So, you know, be thinking along those lines mm -hmm. for, for doing something Isn't like that. Isn't it pretty hard to beat clover? Like, I've, we've, you know, I've been around the chufas and the brassicas yep. and the stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they get it, but it seems like clover is just like... Clovers, yeah, they, they like a clover. Of course, they you know they eat clover seed when they yeah. can find it and scratch it up, and and yeah, it attracts some insects. So yeah, clover's not a bad thing, but here's one of the things that, and I guess this is my personal peeve when yeah, it comes yeah. to land management mm -hmm, and sure. dealing with stuff. Okay, let's say you've got a hundred acres. Yep. And um, out of that, sixty acres of timber. And, and maybe you got a pasture or, or row crop ground and, and you're either grazing the pasture and, and row crops. So it's kind of out of the equation. Mm, right. So you're looking at the 60 acres of timber you want to manage. Mm -hmm. Okay. So first thing you think about is, well, I want to put some food plots out, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. So I'm, I'm, you know, 60 acres with kind of rule of thumb is five to 10%. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's go all out. We're going to do 10%. we got six acres mm -hmm. that we're going to put in on this 60 acres. All right. So you're, you're banking on six acres out of 60 to, do, to provide everything that you need for those turkeys, Yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Why don't you do timber management on 54 acres <laughs> right. that is going to provide what they need, not only when that food plot's ready for them, mm -hmm. yeah. but in January, February, March, yeah. April, May, June, mm -hmm. July, yeah. August, September, October, November. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong, food yeah. plots work and they're, sure. they're a great deal, but don't focus all your effort on food plots. Work on improving the other habitat. And then now we go back to this other idea that we're creating food year round. If we start managing the 54 acres of timber, now we're starting to talk about nesting and broodering cover. Mm -hmm. right? You know, that's part of that whole equation. Yep. So that's really where yeah. I, 
I again, this is my personal opinion, but I yeah. think that's really where you need to be looking. Yeah. Instead of focusing on six acres, let's focus on fifty-four acres. Yeah. And here's the other that makes deal. Makes sense. Food plot. Maybe not with clover, but a lot of food plot, annual food pots. If you're talking about milo yeah. or sunflowers yeah. or buckwheat, you know, you're talking hundred dollars an acre every year. Mm -hmm. Every year, hundred dollars an acre every year. Six acres, mm -hmm. that's six hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. Okay. You can do um I ballpark ten acres of TSI timber stand improvement mm -hmm. for that same six hundred dollars. That's good for ten years. Yeah. And then you go do ten. Then you do ten uh, six acres yeah. next to that six acres. Yeah. So in you can years, invest you your you can invest your same six hundred dollars and over yeah over a period of time you've yeah. got the whole thing covered. So to me it just makes a lot more sense to approach it that way than just focusing solely on food plots. Right. Timber stand improvement would be like. The burns on the leaf litter. Um, yeah, no, not technically. Yeah. That, that'd be prescribed fire. Okay. Um, that would be part of the equation you put into it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, for timber so, stand improvement, yeah. you go in and, okay, we're still looking on your 60 acres. Yeah. Um, so you, you need to have somebody that has an idea of what they're looking at. You go in and, and let's say there's, uh, there's white oak and there's red oak in there. Mm -hmm. Okay, and there's some nice mature trees. Um, then what you would want to do is select that tree and say, okay, that's the one that I want to promote. So you come in and basically you cut every tree that is touching the crown of that to create an area around that tree that eliminates that competition. Mm -hmm. That tree then uh, has a lot more energy available and nutrients available. It produces a lot more acorns. So okay. you go through and you do that, you know, scattered out through your woods, one here, one over here. Um, and, and you th you thin that down so that your your trees that are producing a crop are are have more nutrients available, less competition. They're not competing for water. They're not competing for nutrients. Not competing yeah. for sunshine. Mm -hmm. And that will help those trees uh, do that. And the other thing, no, you're not saying like go and just cut all the timber down except for those. Few oaks, you know. What I mean? Well, or you wouldn't have yeah, yeah, I'm kind of a grasslands guy, so I'd be all over that, you know. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm more grasslands than I am timber, so yeah, yeah. let's just, just yeah. cut them all down. Cut them all down. Yeah. Have you driven by my place recently? Yeah. You saw the timber harvest I did, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Well, I, that's I get it, I yeah. Get it. But, uh, but no, I mean, but you know, a lot of people, um, you, you might say, well, you know, the elm tree is really not producing anything value. It doesn't grow in a shape or a form that a turkey's going to roost in. It's not really producing a lot of, of food for for turkeys or whatever. Right. So you might want to go in and just take your take your elm trees out. Yeah. Um, or, uh, you know, some people don't don't want hickory in their woods. Some people don't want pin oaks in their woods. You know, I, I mean, for me, I would favor I would favor a post oak over a pin oak. Mm -hmm. every day yeah uh, i would favor a white oak over a post oak yeah um you know mm -hmm. i would probably favor a pecan over a hickory so that's sometimes you got to make those decisions when you're in the woods deciding sure. what trees to cut down yeah. and how to create that the break in the canopy to let that sunlight to the ground when you are cutting the trees i've read mixed opinion there's another land management guy i follow on social media his name's don higgins um yep. and he's he's pretty big with him yeah uh if I understand him correctly, he does not like hinge cutting at all. Um, so what, I mean, hinge cutting, can you fill us in on what it is versus the difference between that and just cutting a tree? Yeah, the, the whole idea behind hinge cutting is, is 
just cut the tree part way through and then and then pull it down to the ground so you still have the the part of the bark still attached that allows mm -hmm. the tree to stay alive. Mm -hmm. With the idea is you get the top of the tree down on the ground mm -hmm. and it's still alive, so it's still producing leaves, which is browse for the deer. Yeah. Yep. And it also is get this woolly cover down on the ground, a living brush pile that mm -hmm. creates maybe a turkey nesting spot mm -hmm. or if not a, a place for a a fawn to yeah, for a doe to leave a fawn right. while the doe goes out and, and right. feeds or whatever, yeah. so yeah. It, it creates some good cover. The, yeah. So the idea is that's the idea behind hinge cutting. And what a lot of people like to do is maybe take a series of several trees in a radius and hinge them in on each other. Okay. Um, to again, kind of create that living brush pile. And I mean, from what I've read, he doesn't like it. His his plans are all about killing two hundred inch deer. So he is very strategic about the way he will drop a tree to mm -hmm. funnel animal movement that might be why he doesn't like it for a lot of people that go about doing it they don't have a plan and then just drop trees all over the place and then the deer there's no way for them to even go through it all um so i mean it sounds like maybe it's a personal preference on him i mean is there any really pro or con is there any con to doing hinge cutting other than what i just talked about if you don't have a plan for it uh, not from the wildlife perspective yeah i, I mean you know if, if you're a person that that uh, likes that real nice golf course look, yeah. you know, or, or the yeah. park where or the state park where the trees and it's all mowed, then yeah. you're not going to like hinge cutting. Yeah. Right, Because, right. I mean, it's ugly. It yeah. really makes it look ugly. But to a guy like me and you guys, yeah. when you look at it, it's like, oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Look at it. Yeah. I, mean, I like to drive by and see those white rings around their eyes and their nose with the racks yeah, yeah. when they're laying up in there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I mean, when I drive by a place like that, it's like, man, I want to go turkey hunting there. <laughs> that's yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Interesting. So the. Yeah. Uh, I want to. You were saying that you right now in the present work for the Bob White Technical. Yeah, National Bob White Technical Committee. Yeah. What What is? Let's get into that because I'm a quail lover. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so I can't really remember the history here exactly. It's It's been 17 years or so ago. Um, a group of biologists in the southeast United States, mm. which was kind of the stronghold for quail, uh -huh. you know, Georgia plantation yeah, Georgia. kind yeah. of deal. Mm -hmm. um, but a group of state agency biologists got together and, and said, hey, we got to do something about the decline in quail. Well, long story short, that group from the southeast eventually expanded to cover 25 states, basically everything from the Rocky Mountains west. I mean, Texas yeah. up to Nebraska and, and then east excuse me not west but east yeah um so all, all 25 of those state agencies um got together i mean not everybody in the agency but people within the agencies their quail experts got together and they developed mm -hmm. a national quail plan um and anyway this technical committee is made up of all of those biologists from all of those states it's 25 different states we have an annual meeting and typically there's 150 people that show up from all of these different states to talk about the latest research mm -hmm. and what's going on. So the technical committee is the the technical advisory side of the plan. Mm -hmm. and, and you may be familiar with the North American Waterfowl Management Plan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is the North American Quail Management Plan, okay. more or less. All right. I mean, it's basically the same concept mm -hmm. as the Waterfowl Management Plan except it's targeted to quail but holy cow hey, we got dollars. our we got a, a whole lot more challenges than ducks ever had yes 
Yeah. And there's some tons of dollars that go into waterfowl management. Because there's federal legislation behind yeah. that. So why, it's, I mean. It's called the North American Waterfowl Management Act, I think. I'm not a, I'm not yeah. really into the wetland stuff. A lot so. of money into because federal, a lot of federal money. But. Right, it's federal. They're migratory birds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they have that. Um, but quail are what are known as a state trust species. Missouri is responsible for their quail. Kansas mm -hmm. is responsible uh, for their quail. Okay. Texas their quail. Georgia their quail. So they they're all so the that's the idea behind the. National Public Technical Committees get all of these states that are individually in charge of quail yeah. on their own state to be pulling the same direction and okay. you know, trying to coordinate their efforts. So there still is, I mean, even though Quail Unlimited and, and programs like that just kind of, I don't know, it just, I guess dried up maybe, be the thing or merged into another avenue. I'm not really sure what. Yeah, Quail Unlimited. Uh, I'm, I've got a history with them, so I'll just be polite. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, Quail Unlimited uh, eventually folded. Yeah. Um, yeah. There were um, a couple of groups that sprung out of that. Uh, one was the Quail and Upland Wildlife Federation, mm -hmm. which is based in Buffalo, Missouri. Mm -hmm. um, and the other one was the uh, Quail and Upland Game Alliance, which uh, is based out of Illinois. Then I forgot there was another one. There's another one called Quail Coalition, which is based out of Texas. Mm, okay. um, and of course, Quail Forever things. came along probably five years prior to Quail Unlimited uh, falling apart. Yeah. So Quail Forever is still out there. Um, I Quail Forever is there. I heard it forever. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, Pheasants Forever uh, started a sister organization called Quail Forever. Interesting. Yeah. And they operate on the same principle. I've, I honestly had no idea that there was, you know, so there is plans, there is things in place where we're trying to get this back to, right. I mean, what, what's, what's, well, uh, it's Sunday. all based upon the, uh, it, there's a the, part of this. And by the way, there's a website you go to and you look up all this stuff. It's called bringbackbobwhites.org. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that. yeah, bringbackbobwhites.org, uh, and you can, you can look up a lot of, a lot of different stuff there. Um, I lost my track. What we're talking about? Oh well, yeah. <laughs> what, what's the plan? What's, what's the plan? plan? Yeah. yeah there, there's a, we, we have a program called the coordination, coordinated implementation program, which is basically a proof of concept. Uh -huh. Um, so right now we have, uh, I believe 19 active uh, what we call them SIP, Coordinated Implementation Program, SIP uh, program areas, mm -hmm. uh, a couple of them here in Missouri. Uh, Georgia's got a couple, um, Oklahoma's got one, Texas has got two. I mean, you know, they're scattered around. We've got, out of the 25 uh, states, we've got 19 active ones on the ground. And basically what this is, is, is to prove the concept that is in the management plan, mm -hmm. the national management mm -hmm. plan. And, uh, um, we first did five pilots. Missouri was one of the first pilots. Iowa was also part of that. Georgia was part of that. Um, Kentucky was part of that. Um, don't recall what the fifth one was, but anyway, the, the pilots were done. Um, and basically, we've, we follow a lot of the same things that we've been preaching for years. Sure. But the difference is we're doing it on a landscape scale. Um, what the basis of this is, 
um, due to some modeling, and of course modeling may or may not be exactly right, right but it's right. all based on a computer model, yeah. where the, the people that did all the research on the literature and all of that, they said to sustain a population of quail for 99 years, because I guess their field wasn't big enough to make it 100 in one <laughs> right. database, so right. it would be 99 years. Mm -hmm. To sustain a population of quail for 99 years, it takes a minimum of 1,500 acres of 100% quail habitat on no less than 25% of the landscape. Mm. So if you've got 1,500 acres of 100% quail habitat, that's all you need. Yeah. And you can maintain a population for 99 years. Yeah, right. If it's not 100%, if it's only 50% quail habitat, then you're going to have to have, I can't do the math on that. What mm. is that? You're going to have to do uh, 3,000 acres. Mm. Yep. Yep. Okay. If you're going to meet the minimum, no less than 25%, that's 6,000 acres. Right. And 25% of that has to be quail habitat in order to sustain that population. Yep. So far, on the focal areas, what we're calling them on these programs, we are proving that that if you follow that formula, that does increase quail populations. One of them here in Missouri uh, records two quail per acre and has for wow. two or three years. Um, That's everybody good. else in the country <laughs> yeah, is not really good. I well, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, mean for now, not it may not be the eighties. Oh I no! Mean, now, I mean, yeah, yeah. No, that's that, that's that's a huntable population. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that's a huntable population. Yeah. A, a half a quail per acre is a huntable population. Yeah. Yeah. A half a quail per acre is about what we would have experienced in the 1980s. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's. And so, that was that was good. Mm, I mean, right. I was a kid, but I mean, right. that was good. And you guys, this is something that uh, you know we haven't really talked about here on the Endless Season podcast. And so, as we get into this, I'm super excited about this, and I hope you guys are too. So, yeah. Um, you know, talking about the '80s and the, and the early '90s, um, I don't think the I don't want to say the decline because there's still some birds in the area. Right. I mean, for sure, I have birds. I feed, and we have quail. I have quail in the yard. I video them. I take pictures mm -hmm. of them. I love right. them. Um, but like when you're talking about building on if you have 6,000 acres, 25%, are they releasing birds on that? Are they no. surrogating? No. No, these are wild, birds, wild that are, birds that are expanding that are into expanding that. You know, they're starting naturally. with a source population and they're expanding into that. Yep, exactly. So, I mean, basically what it boils down to is that you have to have a large enough landscape right. and then you have to have a source population of birds to, to work with. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of other research out there that indicates that you know, our mantra has been for years, and I'm as guilty as anybody else, was you build it, they'll come. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it, that worked for a while, but then things changed and it didn't work any longer. Yeah. So, and it yeah. doesn't work that way anymore. Uh, and there's some fairly recent re research out there that indicates that if you don't have birds within about two miles, you're, you're probably, probably not, not ever going to get them. Mm -hmm. You're not going to draw them. Right. Probably not. They're probably not. Now, there's, there's some... Uh, uh, research out of Oklahoma that that showed birds traveling 20 miles. Yeah, you know, in the spring or in the fall, when mm -hmm. the coveys are shuffling, breaking up in the springtime, or there's get a shuffle in the fall. But I don't know if you've ever been to Western Oklahoma; it's all quail habitat. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. you know, you could see them going yeah. 20 miles. Yeah, when yeah. you get in a fragmented landscape like we have around yeah. here, uh, there's not that much of a continuum of habitat right. for them to move that far. Yeah. So they just don't go that far. No. Yeah. It, it, in my area around my place we have you know we have some crop 
we have some ditches with short trees mm. where there's not a lot of predator birds. Mm -hmm. um, there is, you know, obviously the coons, possums, and all that stuff. But right. I trap. I trap. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. And I solely, I don't trap for hides. I solely trap for wildlife. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, those birds, I never see like big bunches. You know, a, a covey might be seven. Mm -hmm. But we have a lot of twos and threes, yeah. and we feed them. And I know, I know where they stay, I know where they come, I know where they go. But mm -hmm. They don't move very far, yeah. And they're pretty patternable, really. I've seen the same pair three times in the last week up on our north side of our place. I don't know if they're nesting right now or not, but very consistent right there. Yeah, they come up behind. Yeah. We got, we're lucky. We got a couple cubbies, but there's only two or three at the most mm. cubbies, uh, but they're pretty sizable, uh, 15 to 20 birds yeah. that we've yeah. seen in different parts of the property. So uh, speaking of predators on quail, uh, this is just a question. It's a story I've been told by... Turkeys. Yeah. Do the turkeys eat the baby quail? That is the... I'm saying no. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying as well. But well, that's a profession. Well, let's see what you're. <laughs> I I don't think there's ever been a study, a true study done on it. But I'm just curious. What oh yeah. Oh, there has been. Oh yeah. There's there's been cameras. I mean, bobwhite quail are the most studied game bird of all game birds in the world. Oh really? Earth. Okay. Absolutely. Um, quail studies were taking place in the in the 1920s. Okay. Um, and I mean, never been documented. Yeah. Never been documented. Now. Does it happen? Well, you know, maybe. I could but see him like no. thumping them, maybe killing it. Yeah, but I, I, I just can't. It, see it just—it's it, never been documented. Uh, and believe me, there have been some really weird things documented. They've—they've <laughs> they've documented cows eating quail eggs. Mm. They've documented deer eating quail eggs. Yeah. They've uh, obviously snakes and possums yeah, and right. armadillos yeah. and raccoons and armadillos aren't eating them, but they're destroying the nest. Destroying them. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So, yeah, they've documented a lot of different things that are roadrunners. Yeah. Uh, mm. it, but they've never documented a turkey. Um, never documented a Good. turkey eating that, quail. Yeah, I don't know. I know of, like, I've heard it from probably over 10 different people over the last five years that are hardcore upland bird hunters that swear <laughs> the damn turkeys are eating all the eggs. Of the and quail. I could give you the history on that, it, but, uh, you know, it'd take a whole nother podcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, let's, uh, you know, talking about land management and quail population and, and stuff like that, what's your feelings, uh, and personally and professionally, on surrogators or put and take? Um, I, I think on either one of those uh, scenarios, if, if the reason you're doing it is um, to provide a hunting opportunity, Maybe to introduce a, a young person to it, uh -huh. to recruit somebody into it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's fine. It, it works great. If you're if you're gonna do, and that would be put and take or surrogate either one. Right. If you're thinking about the surrogator as a way to supplement wild bird population, enhance your enhance population. your population. I think you're probably throwing your money away. Um, I, that money be better invested mm -hmm. in doing habitat improvements, mm -hmm. but. If you're an isolated island somewhere in the middle of nowhere, even doing the habitat improvements aren't going to help you because of that distance away from another population. Yeah. And the there's been several studies done on the survival rate of surrogator birds mm -hmm. and whether they're from captive birds or even wild birds. Yeah. Uh, and it's not good. I mean, it's 
survival rates below 15%, in a lot of cases below 5%. And surrogator birds, is that where there's like that little that box? box? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And they can come and go as they please? And, or is it, no, no, not with surrogators. You raise them to five weeks and then you let them out. Okay. And the, the whole theory behind that is they imprint on that area because okay. that's where they've been raised. Gotcha. Um, and and now I've used them, but it's yeah. been it's been to provide a shooting opportunity. Right, right. Not yeah. to enhance the not the to enhance population. a wild population. Do you yeah. think that a pen raised or doing that or or you know releasing pen raised birds would have a a negative impact on your already wild population? Um, that's questionable. That that really hasn't it hadn't been shown to be an issue. Right. Um, you know, I, myself and most people in my profession like to rely on the science. Sure. And the science mm -hmm. doesn't really support that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, potentially it could be, but we, we don't, yeah. can't really say for sure. Um, I guess like me. You know, most of those birds aren't surviving long enough to infect the population right. or dilute the genetics. Right. Mm -hmm. They're just not living that long. Right. Um, that, and I, I don't want to say never because there are some birds that do make it, you know, to the next year, make it through. Is it yeah, the average lifespan of a quail, even the wild ones, like not even a year? Yeah, like not even a year. Yeah, like, <laughs> it's like nine months, I swear. Yeah, I, I mean, like, you know, the oldest, I, I don't know for sure, but it's just, you know, a wild quail. I mean, if they live to a ripe old age of three, that's amazing. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. But I mean, most of them don't make it to a year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously, some make it a year because they're out reproducing. Right. You know, but they it's have to trying to get those up, numbers but... built up for that reproduction mm -hmm. year to year to year to year yeah. to year. Right. When do they reproduce? Is it right now? They're they're seeking nest locations right now. Okay. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're, they're not probably not laying eggs. Um, you know, that cold snap we had, what was that, three weeks ago or so? Yeah. That probably shut them down for yeah. a little bit. Yeah. I mean, quail, um, in this latitude, uh -huh. um, generally from about the 1st of May to the 1st of September is when they could lay eggs. Uh -huh. uh, most of the eggs are... a big window. A really big window. Most of the eggs are not laid until uh, after the middle of June. Mm. Um, or the end of May, yeah. uh, somewhere in there. Um, a lot of birds hatch at the very end of June, early July, and then there's a lot of birds that hatch in early August. Yeah. Yeah, so they- I, I sure miss the Huntable population. You know, we raised um, with grandma and grandpa, you know, we, we had 3,500 bobwhites on the ground at one time. Mm. We had acres and acres and acres of flight pens and sold to preserves and, mm. yep. and different stuff all over the country. And that's my granddad actually got Johnny into raising. Mm. And we've always talked about that, you know, we've, you know, you realized it, you know, 15% survival rate or, or sometimes less than five. Or like less, said. Yeah, right. Um, you know, but I mean, that's better than zero. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. 5% of something's better than 0% mm. of nothing. Mm -hmm. But like you said, most of the time you're, you're maybe not trying to enhance, but you know, create a hunter, hunting opportunity for right. the fall. I mean, you'd love to enhance, you'd like to think right. that, and you know, even a different strain, you know, Johnny's raised those Georgian giants mm -hmm. and they're, they're just a hardier, healthier, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I have to think in the back of my mind that maybe for whatever reason, if that dude could adapt to some conditions, you know, if those conditions were killing the wild ones because they're considerably smaller and maybe not as, Mm -hmm. You know, 
maybe that strain would survive i don't know <laughs> I, I don't know there i mean there's been a lot of work with translocating yeah. you know birds but which brings up another topic they actually are having some success with translocating wild birds oh yeah well, that's um, but man is that an expensive proposition oh, um yeah and that's the biggest thing is like well why can't we put in tags like well, somebody's got to buy all these birds <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know and if you buy a hundred or let's say you buy a thousand and only 5% of them make it, that's a pretty good kick in the pants. Yeah. Right. Well, particularly when we're talking about having to have that landscape level yeah. of quality of habitat. I mean, you, it's packing sand right. in a rat hole. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, you just... but I think if a person puts the money in, puts the time in and the sweat in to build his farm to try to enhance yeah. you know, the, the wildlife, I think he should be allowed to, if he wants to turn 300 loose, turn 300 loose. You know, I mean, and I think you can't, you can if you buy the permit. Yeah, right? you buy the permit. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I think that's yeah. a good thing. And, you know, maybe it, some of it would bleed on the neighbors. Maybe, yeah. you know, and I think if everybody maybe got the collective mindset, but it just, gosh, we have, I know we have viewers that are excellent bird hunters, mm -hmm. and but you just don't see the bird dogs much anymore. Well, you know, the last few years, though, there's seemed to be a little bit of an uptick. You know, Rodney Hargrave is a good buddy of mine, and he's got bird dogs and goes all over the place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Chasing yeah. those things. And, and uh, I miss it. I trained a lot of dogs and all that for Buddy Bear up at Bear's Den Kennels, yep. you know. And, right. And I used to train some dogs and sell them to him, and mm -hmm. we sold him a lot of birds and everything, and we raised the pheasants and the quail and chuckers. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had different strains. We had the Georgia Giants. We had the Alabama Red Legs. We even had some California Blue Quail. Mm -hmm. and, right. Uh, time to time, just raising different things. But yeah. It, it is nice in the summertime. You can come to my house about any evening and, and hear them whistling. Right. And, and it's... Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's childhood memory for me. Yeah, raising them. It's fun, exactly what you just said, sitting out here on the porches and just they're doing their little their little whistle, and yeah. you're just quiet, and they'll come right up. They'll come right up to our bird feeders too. So yeah. it's kind of. So yeah. really, though, I mean, this time of year, um, you know, out turkey hunting or whatever, and yeah. you hear the bobs calling, mm -hmm. uh, that's that's one way to kind of get an index of, of of your population. First of all, you know they're there because yeah. you hear them calling. Right. And, and so if you hear five or six different bobs, then you know, you know, you've got five birds out there that are potentially breeding. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what that translates to in the fall is a different story, but at least you know you've got something out there that's, sure. that's working something towards to start it. With. Another part of that is then to go back in the fall, typically about deer season, when you're sitting on a deer stand in early morning, about mm -hmm. 30 minutes before sunrise, they have this cubby call. Mm -hmm. And I can't imitate it, but I mean, you can find them online mm -hmm. as easy as you can, and you can hear those cubby calls. Well, then you can say, well, there's a covey, there's a covey, there's a covey. Mm -hmm. right. Then based on, on averages, you can say, well, that's, if there's three birds, three coveys calling, there's probably 30 birds out there. Mm -hmm. yeah. So then if you want to set a harvest target, let's say I don't want to shoot any more than 25% of what I've got. Mm -hmm. And yeah. then you figure your 25% of those 30 birds mm -hmm. and, and then quit. Yeah. yeah. And that's, yeah. you set your harvest at that. That way you're not over harvesting. Yeah, yeah, or that's fifty percent cool. or whatever. Fifty percent is is probably a little bit high because the mortality rate is so high. It, if you harvested fifty, that'd be yeah, be on the high side. You know? In the beginning of in the beginning of the decline, though, it was the the biggest thing 
or thought, you know, I'm sure there's so much, you guys have done so much studying now that you've got all kinds of ideas, but in the beginning it was habitat, right? Right. I mean, mostly habitat. I mean, farmers well, are farming ditch to ditch, hedgerows are yeah. going out, you know. Um, not saying that farmers don't need to farm ditch to ditch. I know there's farmers on here. So. <laughs> but I'm saying that they, you know, they right. push out a lot of trees and stuff like that. I mean, that. it's still habitat. The habitat's changed, it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. It, I mean, it's still habitat, but what we've not done previously, we've not looked at that landscape mm -hmm. scale. We've not looked at how much it takes to maintain it. And you think about that little island of habitat that keeps getting shrunk smaller and smaller and smaller, and now you've got the raccoons and the possums mm -hmm. and the skunks. Mm -hmm. They got... They don't have to search all of this area. No. Now all they got to do is search this area yeah. right here. Yeah. So that puts a lot more pressure on them. That's a symptom of the problem. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Yep. Well, I hate to cut us off, but we're right at about an hour. Already? Right where we like Man. to... Did we, did we, we get off track? Absolutely <laughs> yeah. no, I We kind of got off track. <laughs> no, Jeff, I think we're going to have to have you back for round two yeah, there's at some a, point. So. There's a lot more I know I'd like to learn, and yeah. hopefully you guys do. Yeah, because, I mean, we didn't even get to start talking about any of the deer stuff, which I'm sure you got yeah. a lot of knowledge. You know, we didn't even talk about talking about quail today. We, I mean, it was... No! I mean, was, we weren't intending to do that. Yeah. We just... That's just the way it goes. Yeah. Jeff just had to ask the question. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, I think, but that's my passion. So well, you, know, you hit yeah. the question, and then yeah. you open the door. I'm coming that's in. Right. <laughs> that's right. That's uh, right. Is there any any websites or contact information or anything about like some of the organizations you'd like people to know about that you mm -hmm. want to share real quick? That the guy's got a farm and wants to do some improvement or has questions or what can I do on my farm? Well, do? yeah. I, I mean, the first thing I tell people. Um, in Missouri is contact Missouri Department of Conservation. They have um, people called private lands conservationists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Kansas <clears throat> Department of Wildlife and Parks, I'm assuming there's probably some Kansas folks yeah. in mm -hmm. here too. Yeah. Um, they have individuals within their agency that come out and do private land visits and they'll they'll look at things and make some recommendations. No obligation, yeah. doesn't yeah. cost anything. They yeah. come look at it, make yeah. some recommendations. Um, other than that, the the uh, USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service, mm -hmm. um, there are a number of federal farm bill programs that will help pay for a lot of habitat improvements Improving. out there. Um, so once you kind of get a plan in place mm -hmm. or kind of know what you want to do, you can go visit with those people and you might qualify for some cost share assistance yeah. um, to be able to help pay for getting the work done. I know our local NRCS is that's the one over behind Pizza Glen, right? Yep. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Henry yeah. County. Yep. Uh huh. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, we really appreciate you coming out and spending some time with us. Yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to do this again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe we'll get into a little more habitat stuff. That's right. Yeah. 100%. 100%. So, well, hey guys, thanks for watching. This probably spurred a lot more questions. So, if you have any, we're going to have Jeff on again. Uh, if you have any questions for the next time that we have them on, shoot it our way so we can make sure to have those ready for them. Um, and we appreciate you guys, like I said, for watching. You can find this. You'll see this on Facebook. And for those that are on Facebook and you want someone to see it, it'll be on YouTube at the Truman Lake Fish and Intel YouTube channel as well. So uh, I'm Tyler Mahoney. And I'm Jeff Falkenberry. And our special guest, Jeff Hodges. Jeff Hodges. Uh, Thanks. And by the way, I prescribed fire is my other passion. So if you want to talk about fire, we can have another really okay. good experience. I like fire. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Thanks, guys. We'll catch you on the next one.